0: Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today's Thursday, December 31st, 2020, last podcast of the year. In today's podcast, Positivity and Power, I'm joined by motivational speaker, Carrie Creed. Carrie tells her amazing story of overcoming a very difficult medical history and difficult pregnancies and how she decided to use her story to inspire others. What a great message for the end of such a disaster of a year positivity and power we can certainly use it. Wishing all of you a wonderful new year. 2021 is gonna be awesome. Thanks a lot, have a great day and have a great weekend. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Women, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox. An OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, I'm here with Carrie Creed, who is an international motivational speaker. She has a website, ww.carriecreed.com. We'll give you the spelling of that at the end. Carrie, I'm so happy to have you on Helpful Woman. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks so much, Nate. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited about your platform and everything you've been able to do to help women. And I'm very proud to be a part of it.
0: I mean, our connection is is really new. You just heard one of our podcasts and like boom, reached out to us, right?
1: That's right. I was actually following you on Instagram and I think it was actually following the, the hashtag placenta previa. And one of your recent episodes came up and I, I gave it a, a listen and loved it. And then I reached out and kind of shared a little bit about my story and then we connected.
0: I read your story. We spoke. I learned about your story and what you're doing now and how you pivoted from you know what you went through to you know helping others. And I just think it's a really interesting and amazing story on many fronts. Number one, just sort of what you were through medically and in terms of pregnancy, but also how you use that experience to really learn about yourself and about the world and about how to help other people. And that's what you're doing now. So I just think it's tremendous and I'm really excited to get into it with you.
1: Thanks so much. I'm really trying to turn pain into purpose. And you know, there's only a reason to to go through what I've been through. And as you know, it's been a lot and and your listeners will soon find out, but there's no reason to go through all that if I can't turn it into a positive and and help others to make their challenge that much easier to be able to leverage the strategies that helped me as well.
0: Give our listeners a sense of who you are, where you're from, and, you know, take yourself up until the point of your own medical story.
1: Sure, absolutely. So again, my name is Carrie Creed and I am a married and a mom of two beautiful children. I have a five-year-old son Tristan and a two and a half year old daughter, Ten Lee. I live outside of Philadelphia and I have my own company called Carrie Creed Consulting LLC. And for the past 13 years, I've actually been a sales executive in the payments industry and have loved the financial industry with with payments and have presented to numerous clients on stages for that. And when I was going through various challenges in my life, not only growing up, high school, college, and my career, my medical history has taken me out of whatever I had been doing. And I've had a hard time getting back to what I was previously doing. But each time I was able to get back. And after going through those challenges, which I'll go in in a minute, you know, I realized that other people are having similar challenges. Other people are going through struggles and not even in this day in in, in the world of COVID, just in general, other people are are suffering with, with many, many elements. So I really wanted to put together my tried and true strategies that worked for me twice over a 20 year period and really share them with the world to help them. So, you know, where my story really starts is I was born with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or EDS, and it's a rare connective tissue disease. It was very hard to diagnose. I was very flexible growing up. I had a lot of joint pain. I was very flexible in the standpoint where my fingers can go all the way back. My feet can go behind my head. You know, it was fun at first until I had knee braces and wrist braces and ankle braces and braces on my teeth for so many years cuz my teeth would move back and forth and my joints would sublux and finally had that diagnosis after I had major issues with with muscle weakness but it wasn't until I all of a sudden wasn't able to walk that you know my life really changed
0: How old were you when they made that diagnosis? I
1: was a sophomore in high school, 16 or 17, and all of a sudden I just had extreme weakness, was taken to the hospital and later transferred to a Children's Hospital in Philadelphia where I saw genetic Assist. And I had been seen by another specialty hospital for many years and was misdiagnosed as hypermobility syndrome or growing pains, I heard, over and over, which is very disheartening as a young, healthy girl to be in so much pain and just be told it's growing pains or even I was making it up. After not being able to walk, and picture this with me, Nate, and anyone listening, if, if you were to stand up and you have your feet parallel, and your kneecaps, your patellas are pointing straight. If you were to squat and bend your knees, your knees bend straight, right? Right. Well, my right knee would bend medial. So it would bend completely behind my left leg, but my feet would stay parallel. Yeah. And that literally happened one day. And so the doctors at that time said that my... IT band, the iliotibial band in my right leg had stretched out and that they needed to just shorten that a little bit. And if they pulled it, it would pull my patella forward and I would be able to walk again. So there was obviously a couple other things going on inside my leg. And, you know, they, they had that procedure and they did the surgery and I went to extensive physical therapy, which I've been in and out of my whole life. And I rehabbed and I had a homeschool that summer to keep up with my class to start my junior year. And it was all great. And I thought, you know, I'd get past that and everything was fantastic. I decided to go to college. I decided to major in nursing because I was so fascinated by medicine and and had always loved, you know, even helping to diagnose myself and get to the right doctors after my freshman year in college. And I. Gosh, I remember this day so vividly, taking one of my last finals and you know walking back to my dormitory. I glanced down at my right leg as I was walking up a minor hill and I noticed my right kneecap just turning in ever so slightly. And I had that like pit in my stomach. Yeah. Here, here we go as, again. Yep. As every 20-year-old girl does, they call their mom <laughs> <laughs> and they say you know, mom, can you, uh, can you just call the surgeon back? I just kind of want to just go for a checkup. I, you know, I'm a little concerned. Well, that appointment was made for two weeks from that date. And before I even got to that appointment, I was completely crippled again. I was then told I had to have a extremely radical surgery called a double rotational osteotomy, which is a orthopedic surgeon taking a saw and sawing apart your femur, your thigh bone, sawing apart your tibia and fibula, which is your lower leg bone and rotating them in opposite directions. And then I had 12 external pins drilled into my bones that stuck out of my leg. That's then attached to another metal rod.
0: Yeah. Believe it or not. I have a friend who had that operation, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's a bear. It's serious. It's a stuff. Bear. Yeah. That is, a, yeah. that's a real orthopedic. Adventures. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and, and then you're 20. I mean, you're a young woman. Exactly. In college. I mean, I mean, it's no great time to have that operation, but I mean that must, that that must have just been so devastating.
1: It was, and you know, at the time, I was told I was going to miss one semester of school, and I thought, okay, I can miss one semester of nursing school. I can probably do a couple things online. Maybe I can catch up and take some extra credits the following couple years and still graduate on time. Well, it turned out I missed two years, not two semesters, four semesters, but two years. I was actually hospitalized uh, for seventy three days. I was then moved home with the pins still in for another five months and then got the pins out only because my body was starting to reject the metal. And they told me I had a very good chance of having my leg amputated, got the pins out that following May. So my surgery was in September, had the pins all through that end of the year into May and rushed to the hospital, had the pins removed and thank God they were able to save my leg. But it was nowhere near healed. You know, throughout that whole time, besides intensive physical therapy, three times a day, which involved just walking to help the cells recalcify to grow again. Very different when you have that surgery. It's not like you have a cast on your arm where your body just heals. I actually had to pound my leg for the cells to regrow that bone. I had a complete non-union and my body just decided not to heal at all. And because of the Ehlers-Danlos and because of the pain in my leg when I was learning how to rewalk and trying to do that first on a walker and then later on parallel bars, as you can imagine, you know, it's super painful to stand on that leg that's broken in numerous spots. So if you can't stand on your leg, you put the weight on your arms, right? Well, that doesn't work very well when you have either lows and I end up blowing out both my shoulders. Yeah. I then had to, you know, learn to walk with somebody else holding their belt and kind of do a dance where they had to walk backwards. And we had to choreograph it where I walked forward because God forbid if my leg was to hit theirs, it would be excruciating. So we made it work. But you're right. As a 20-year-old woman, I mean, I, I had bedpans and bed bedbats for over 11 months.
0: Yeah, you know, wow. who took care of, who took care of you? Your parents? Yeah,
1: my mom actually. She slept in a chair at the hospital for seventy three days, never left my side. Then when I was home, I was placed in a hospital bed in our in our living room in our small apartment, and you know she took care of me. We had a nurse come in for a few hours in the morning. We had a physical therapist come in every day in the afternoon, and then my father would come over after he got out of work to come do physical therapy with me at night. To put me back in bed before he went back to his own home. Wow. So it was a whole system that we had in place. And throughout that time, I, I started to learn the strategies of perseverance and how a positive mindset makes such a difference. And how, you know, I was on so much medication, so much pain medication, and everyone's concern was addiction. And after all of that, I was able to come off of it within like three or four days with zero issues.
0: Right. So I want to ask you actually two things. Number one, did, did you have any siblings at home with you at the time?
1: So I have an older brother uh-huh. who's 3 years older than I am. So he was in college at that time. Got it.
0: And do do does anyone either either of your parents or your brother have ehlers Downlos?
1: So as you know, it's autosomal dominant, which means I ha- yeah, I have a 50% chance of passing it on and one of my parents has to have it.
0: Right. So well, no, you neither- could have a new you could have a new mutation in theory.
1: Oh, true. Yeah, that's true. What's interesting is both of my parents have never been diagnosed, but they both show different elements of it. Interesting. My mom's always been very flexible, and my dad has like has flexible feet. Like I have his strange feet. It's like yeah. I have different pieces of both that that show signs, but neither one of them were greatly ever affected. Got it. And since I have hypermobility type, there's no actual test. It's more of a a clinical diagnosis when you do certain things and they do measurements. It's not it's not a skin biopsy that could be detected.
0: Right, because there's so much we, we're learning about this condition, and there probably are other genetic subtypes and mutations. One of the big questions is why do some people, elders downloads, have an easier time and some have a harder Uh time with it? And it could be the specific mutation they have, but it could also be potentially if there's other sort of related mutations in the same sort of family of genes that you can get. So maybe it's, you know, your father has one minor mutation, your mother has another, and maybe that's why. I mean, who knows? It's one of these things we're still learning. But the other question I want to ask you is, How did you come to this realization about the positive thinking and the positive attitude? I know you said you did it, but like where did it come from? Did just out of nowhere or was there something that helped you get to that place?
1: It's such an interesting thing to look back on. Because when I share my second story, it was so intentional. With my leg situation, it wasn't necessarily intentional. It it just it almost came out from within me as as cliche or Cheesy as that sounds, I just knew I've always been a positive person. I've always been an optimist. I've always been an extremely hard worker. Family struggled financially growing up after my parents' divorce. And I always knew how to be a, a go getter and to get things done and not to sulk and not to do the woe is me. And so that really carried through with me throughout this process. And I knew that I had to look for that light at the end of the tunnel and keep pushing forward and celebrate the small wins. And, you know, the time at the hospital was really challenging, but I was also the most sick then in the most pain. And you know it's interesting how your brain blocks out moments in your life when you have extreme trauma or pain, because there's very little bit in the hospital that I can fully remember. My poor mother remembers every single millisecond that that occurred. But when I came home, and I was, you know, not on as heavy medicine, and had my routine going and, you know, took back some control of as much independence as I could. That's where things started to shift for me. And, you know, one of the the biggest things that happened was I happened to be watching like a daytime talk show during the day. And Mariah Carey came on to sing like her latest single through the rain. And I wasn't really a Mariah Carey fan or anything, but I'm just sitting there watching it. And for some reason, that song just resonated with me because the lyrics said, I will walk again. I will walk through the rain. I will stand up. And I, like kind of took a double take and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I, I am. And I, I immediately had to have that CD. And it's funny because I have no idea who bought it for me. You know, Amazon prime was not around back then. yeah. So I don't know how it got to me, but I would listen to that song three times every night before I went to bed.
0: That's so cool. And her name uh, sounds like yours, Carrie.
1: Oh, true. Yeah, <laughs> I never realized that. That's, that's actually so, that's so true. Yep. Um, I, you know, listen to just that one track. And then I also started watching The Hour of Power, which is like a spiritual show. And, you know, they talk a lot. They have a ton of motivational quotes. And I had this little purple notebook that I put alongside my bed in this little plastic bin that had like my own little supplies that I could reach. And I would jot down these motivational quotes. And before bed, I would go through those lists and I would reread those quotes as after I listened to the song Through the Rain three times. And I would also maintain, this is where I got like a little bit OCD to maintain control, but in a way it's, it's good. Like when I went to bed at night, it was almost so childish, but like I had to have the blankets in a certain order and the stuffed animals around the bed rails sat in the same order because I couldn't move in bed. You know, I had pins sticking out of my leg. I was, you know, I'm laying on my back and I don't move for the next eight hours. So everything needed to have its place. And that's how I kind of took back control. And that's what gave me a little bit more power. And if I had power, it made me feel like I could prevail. Yeah, and it, it that's and that's what happened, and and I did, and I got to the point where the pins had to come out, and you know they were able to save my leg, and they had to get this huge brace for me that went under my breastbone all the way down to my ankle, and I was then moved to the Ronald McDonald House in Philadelphia, where I lived there for five months with my mom and did outpatient physical therapy every day, multiple multiple hours a day on my entire body, and that's where I learned how to rewalk again.
0: Yeah and I think what you said some of it's about control this idea of you know when you're in a situation where you you don't have control or it feels like you don't have control meaning that that element of life becomes so evident right? I mean we really don't have control but when, mm-hmm. when it's more like pervasive in what you're feeling these little things that you take back some control are really helpful sort of you know in terms of your mindset but also I think those motivational you know whether it's a song whether it's a phrase whether it's a quote I mean, people use them and they're successful. I mean, if you look at yeah. the military uses them, sports teams use them. I mean, it's not it's not hocus pocus. I mean, no. having these types of things to, to reframe how you're thinking and to focus your mind are actually helpful for people in getting through very difficult situations.
1: It's so true. And, you know, until you actually try it and until you're going through something and you need that positive affirmation, you might laugh at it, you know looking at yourself in the mirror saying like, I am strong, I am powerful, I've got this, I can do this, you know, it might seem really silly. But until you're in that moment when you need to remind yourself of how strong you are, because most of the times we don't realize what we all have inside of us. We don't realize how strong we are until we're forced to use our own personal strength to persevere. And, you know, those are the times where we need to pull it from deep down inside of us and and leverage it so we can succeed. And that's exactly what I did in those moments.
0: Wow. So that that got you in your early 20s. -hmm. And then as you said, this sort of came back to you later in life.
1: Did I, you know, I went back to college. I had actually transferred schools, changed my major, but graduated, met my husband and got married. And then, you know, we decided to start a family after some years. And that was a point in my life where it created a lot of anxiety because, you know, as a a woman with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I knew my pregnancy would be high risk. And I was very concerned about the additional weight of the baby on my legs. And, you know, as much as I was doing so much better, I was able to keep my muscle tone where it needed to be through various workouts and keep my pain level down. I was so afraid of what a pregnancy, you know, gaining 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, who knows how many pounds you're going to gain could do. And could that, you know, reverse everything. And the uncertainty of that really threw me in a tailspin when we became pregnant in 2014. But I became pregnant and I was monitored very closely, had ultrasounds. Basically, every about twelve to fifteen days. And you know they were checking for a shortened cervix. They were checking for you know all sorts of things. And I was told I was only able to gain like eighteen to twenty pounds. And I stayed roughly around there. I think I was more like twenty five, but they wanted me to keep the weight as low as possible, which is obviously really important for my legs. So the pregnancy actually went very well. My son ended up being breech, which turned out at the time to be a little bit of a blessing because the big debate, Was how should I deliver? Right. Should I try to deliver vaginally? And, you know, if I did that and I had an epidural, my hips are so flexible that if the nurses were pulling my hips back, they could just dislocate. I wouldn't be able to tell them to stop. But yet, a surgery, a cesarean, my healing time after surgery is so much lengthier than a typical person. So that wasn't the best answer either. So there was really no right answer, but, you know, he was breached. So cesarean it was. And it allowed us to just kind of throw our hands in the air and say, you know, that's. We didn't need to make a choice. This is the only option. Right. You know, delivered him. He was healthy, wonderful. My recovery did definitely took many, many weeks, but I, you know, recovered and, you know, went on and everything was great. And two years later, we decided to expand our family again. And this time I wasn't anxious as much about the Ehlers-Danlos. I had done it. I had, you know, relost the 20 pounds. I was actually the healthiest I had ever been. I had started a new exercise program. I had come off any medicine I was on for inflammation, like the healthiest I've ever been.
0: What kind of exercise were you able to do with your Ehlers-Danlos?
1: So what I found was bar bar exercises. You know, the combination of Pilates, yoga, and ballet oh, great. Uh, is 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 the best for me. All yoga with with stretching is not good. Pilates is wonderful, and but this bar exercising with like, you know the tiny motions but repetitiveness has really created this long lean muscle for me, mm-hmm. and it is just it's changed my, my whole body. It's changed the, the, the pain level that I have. It's changed the tone. It's changed the way my muscles support my joints. It's been a, a, a huge blessing. I went into that pregnancy as, as strong and as healthy as possible and everything was growing great. And my 20 week ultrasound showed that I had placenta previa. You know, at that point, it's interesting because, you know, going back to your previous episode on placenta previa and how you said, you know, don't don't ever Google that because it leaves you down, a, <laughs> you know, a bad path. They'll find you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I had, interesting enough, I had never heard of placenta previa prior to them telling me I had it. And I didn't understand even... You know, they they said, oh, it's just, you know, your placenta is covering your cervix and you'll have to have a C-section. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to have a C-section anyway. So no big deal. Right. Right. So I kind of left that appointment as it's really no big deal. You know, they did tell me that I had an increased chance of bleeding and I have factor five light in as well. Normally I take a baby aspirin, but when I'm pregnant, I had to have an injection of blood thinners every day. So the doctor had said, you know, since you're on a blood thinner and you have an increased chance of bleeding, that's not really a good combo. So if you do bleed, you're going to bleed heavily and you need to make sure that you get medical attention.
0: And at the time they didn't go in with you the the risk of that placenta accreta? They did not. I mean, that's okay. It usually It's usually not the case. It, like, it depends how it looks on ultrasound, but it's about a 10% chance. If you have a prior C-section and a placenta previa, that combination makes accreta about 10%. Uh, Give or take. Got it. So, But again, when you see it on ultrasound, you can sometimes make that number higher or lower based on how it appears.
1: Well, what's interesting is the doctor, he mentioned placenta previa and then threw out the word placenta accreta and then mentioned hysterectomy and then went back to previa. And I literally left that appointment not knowing what I had. Right, and I actually ended up having to text the doctor later and be like, "Wait, do I have a creta? Do I have previa? Like, which one should I be googling?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which one should I be terrified of? Yeah,
1: (laughs) yes, yes." And he was like, "You do not have a creta. You have placenta previa. Like, everything will be okay." I'm like, "Okay, thank goodness." So at that point, uh, you know, I continued on with my daily life. This was you know November, December of 2017. I was traveling for work extensively. I trip in in Seattle. I was in New York. I did a week in Germany. I was, you know, hustle and bustle of the holidays. I was everywhere. And, you know, it wasn't until I went to another OB appointment and I was around around, I think like 22 weeks. And my OB was like, how are you doing? And I basically just said, I'm fine. And it just happened to mention that I was traveling. And she was like, wait, you're traveling. You, You can't be traveling. I'm like, says who? Like no one's ever told me. And she's like, you can't be exercising. Like, I'm like, wait, what?" And she kind of put me in a panic. I'm like, I'm leaving for Germany in like 24 hours. Like, I I can't cancel this trip. This is a huge trip for me. And so she's like, you need to take all your medical information with you. And so she printed out this binder for me that I took to Munich, Germany. And I remember walking out of the office thinking, wait, what what is happening? Like, how serious how, how serious. Is this situation like what? What is happening? I was like, okay, this is this is bizarre. And so I talked to her about exercising and said, you know, she said bar three is totally fine as long as I'm taking the modifications and not doing planks or you know heavy squatting. So I'm like, okay. So I go to Germany and I come back, thankful everything's all right. And she told me I'm not allowed to go anywhere after that. That was a couple days before Christmas.
0: You've been grounded.
1: I was grounded, totally grounded. And I was like, okay. So we had Christmas, we had New Year's, and on January fifth, two thousand eighteen. I was it was a Friday I was running an errand on my lunch hour. I just had gotten done exercising and I took a, a bar class over lunch and then ran to a store right down the street to return a pair of leggings. I was actually at motherhood maternity. Go figure. Mm-hmm. And I'm at the counter and I felt this gush. And how many you know, weeks were you at the time? Twenty five. Twenty five. Okay. Yep. And, you know, what's interesting is when they tell you you have a chance of bleeding, you know, not to be like too much TMI, but like women have discharge and stuff. And whenever you feel something, I don't place to
0: be a TMI. We are all about TMI. Whatever you want to say, we'll listen to it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So whenever you had a little discharge, like I'd always like, Susan's up to the bathroom if I was at work and just, just check. Right. Yeah. And everything was always fine. But this was a gush. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I'm either hemorrhaging or my water just broke. Yeah. And I have never felt my water break before because I had a C-check. Yeah. But I'm like, this could be what it feels like. So I went to the bathroom and there was blood everywhere.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty scary thing.
1: So scary. And I immediately called 911 and I went into a disorientation of my medical history in the calmest, coolest way, because in my mind, I was like, if an ambulance comes and they don't know who I am or how many weeks pregnant or why I'm bleeding or anything like that could be really bad for me. Yeah. So I was going through everything so they would know. Uh, Thankfully, the bleeding stopped. I had to lay on the floor until they arrived. And. Gosh, the poor, the poor retail clerk was having a heart attack. <laughs> oh my God. Like she kept saying, how are you so calm? I'm about to freak out. And I'm like, oh, well, don't do that because I'm trying really hard to stay calm. But they, you know, they took me to the hospital and they, they later transferred so your hospital, to... your
0: the, hospital, the correct hospital or you had to get transferred no, after?
1: I had to get transferred. And I had asked that the... the ambulance driver to take me to the one where they had a level three NICU just in case I had to deliver. Right, And they they refused because they said, we have to take you to the closest hospital because you're our patient, not your baby.
0: Yeah, that's so tough. Those things are so hard. Oh my God, we have that all the time because ambulances have to do what they have to do. But like, you know, the second you're going to land in one of those local hospitals, they're going to say, oh, my God, you got to get the hell out of here yeah. as soon as it possible. Because that baby comes awful. out. We can't deal with, with that baby at that age. Right. So oh, it's hard, It was it's awful. Hard. And I mean, the yeah. hospital
1: that they were going to send me to was still a great hospital, but they had a level two NICU, yeah. So they can only see babies from 32 weeks on. Yeah. And, you know, as a mom, my my number one goal is my baby and everyone else's number one goal is me. <laughs> So yeah. it was, it was horrible, but you know, I called my husband, he met me at the hospital and then, you know, they, they did the stress test and the baby was fine. You know, I was having a little girl and she was none the wiser of what was happening. Right. And I was later told I had about a 30% chance of delivering that yeah. day The transfer took forever, probably six or seven hours. I was transferred 15 minutes away to another hospital that had a level, a level three NICU and I never left. For 65 days.
0: And your doctors, were they at that hospital? I mean, they could see you there, or did you have to have a whole new set of doctors?
1: A whole new set of doctors.
0: Oh, dear. Yeah, that's tough.
1: A whole new set of doctors. People people like me. Yes, (laughs) yeah, there you go. But you know what? Those doctors I had fallen in love with, I actually transferred all my future care to those doctors and nothing against the other ones. I just now I'm completely bonded to them in a different way. Right. And so, you know. I was there and they originally told me that I had to be not bleeding for 24 hours to go home at
0: like, least. Okay. Yeah.
1: So I bled on and off for four days. And after the fourth day, they said, you know, since you've been bleeding for a couple of days now, you need to be not bleeding for a week to yeah. go home. Uh huh. And I said, okay. So we got to about like day three in that week and the doctor came in and I said, I, I just have a question. And she said, yes. And, and I go, I'm not actually going to be going anywhere am I like you're just kind of stringing me along is that accurate <laughs>
0: <laughs> this, these are the lies you tell right <laughs>
1: Yeah yeah this, this was just to make sure I didn't freak out a couple of days ago right is that is that accurate And she sat down and she said yes that that's that's pretty accurate Carrie we you know there's a high chance you're going to bleed again and you know, when you have a couple bleeds, like you are going to need to stay here, but let's just reevaluate. Let's see what happens.
0: Right. Were these, were you seeing um, maternal fetal medicine doctors or OBGYNs or a combination? I'm just curious. What was the, the, the makeup of the doctors who were seeing you every day?
1: Yeah. So the doctors seeing me every day were just OBGYNs. Uh-huh. Um, the maternal fetal medicine doctors, I would see every Monday for an ultrasound.
0: Right. And did they at any time suspect that it might be a placenta accreta once you were admitted?
1: Not yet. Not at that point.
0: So still just the previa correct right it's just hard it's hard to see an ultrasound it's not this is not knocking anybody it's very difficult to sometimes diagnose and it's difficult to rule out it's it's ultrasound's not perfect MRI's not perfect it really frequently you don't know until the moment you deliver
1: they found it 2 weeks later or 3 weeks later they did it okay just wasn't, they, oh they did yeah okay. they found it the last week in january you know i was there for a couple weeks had my monday ultrasound and it was the last week in january and the doctor came in and said well you know We're in an interesting spot right now because you you haven't bled now in about two and a half weeks, and we're we're thinking of sending you home. Right. And and I said, oh, I'm not going home.
0: Right. How far did you live from that hospital?
1: Twenty five minutes.
0: Yeah, and that's part of the problem. We we frequently have a hard time deciding whether someone should stay or go home in that circumstance. And you know, I mean, generally we wouldn't, you know, string people along. We'll tell them what we're thinking, but it's, it's hard because there isn't a right or a wrong. And the problem is if you go home and you bleed again and you call Mm -hmm. 911, the same thing's going to happen. They're going to take you to the other hospital. Yeah. And sometimes you just don't have time for that and the transfer. And so it's not that like keeping in the hospital, some magical, you know, kingdom, that's going to keep you from bleeding. It's just, if you bleed at home, you're not going to end up in the right place necessarily within time for your health and for the baby's health. Whereas if you're there, at least we know, you know, you're going to go to this room, this operating room, and we're going to do it. And so it sometimes comes down to just logistics, not so much the medicine of it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and that was my biggest fear. So I live on a, on a little bit of a mountain in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And the day before my bleed, we had a horrible snowstorm to the point that we weren't able to get our cars up our street. Mm. So I bled. The day before, an ambulance, there's no way they would have been able to get to me.
0: Get snowmobiled over to the hospital. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I had said to them, I'm like, there's no way I'm going home. And they said, well, Carrie, you might not have a choice. Insurance is probably going to cut us off. Let's go and see your ultrasound now and see if anything has changed. And then we'll have to make a decision. So talk about like a complete mind shift. I went from like two and a half, three weeks of praying not to bleed and praying everything is okay. To then praying that I would just bleed the tiniest bit. Right. Because if I was just to bleed the tiniest bit, they wouldn't send me anywhere.
0: Right. Wow. And it
1: was just such a weird switch of like, I can't believe I'm asking to have a little bit of a bleed to just stay here to be safe. Like it just, it was so strange. So. I ended up going for this ultrasound the next day and interesting enough, I talked to the doctor beforehand and she was like, I just don't, you know, the situation's really, really tough. I don't know what we can what we can possibly do. Obviously, we want your mental state to be okay and, you know, sending you home is not going to do that. That's definitely a reason to keep you, but let's just see how your condition is. Well, that's the day they found the placenta accreta wow. and I had a detailed ultrasound. At the end of it, she said, well, I have, I have good news and I have bad news. And I said, okay. Good news is you're staying the good news is you're saying you, you got what you wanted. And the bad news is, you know, you now have placenta accreta. I'm, I'm almost positive. We're going to get an, an MRI to confirm, but you know, we need to talk about the next steps and what this means for delivery, the time period. And you know what this means for the overall situation of, you know, your reproductive history Yeah. or future. So, you know, that was also a bizarre deep breath exhale because the anxiety of needing to leave to be safe was gone, but right. now the anxiety of what the future held was extremely disturbing.
0: Right at that time, what did you understand about placenta accreta? Because you said you you sort of it, it went past you before you didn't know whether to ask about it. Did you understand what that meant exactly at the time? The
1: only thing I knew that it meant was that I had to have a hysterectomy.
0: Right, and I think just for our listeners, that's the big difference. If you have a placenta accreta, it means the placenta is stuck to the uterus. We don't expect it to come off after, deliver- after delivery and almost always, or always, it means that when you deliver by C-section, the uterus comes out afterwards, meaning a hysterectomy, meaning no more babies, at least that yeah. you would carry.
1: Correct, correct. And so that's the only part that I really understood. I didn't realize at the time the life-threatening aspect of it. I right. didn't realize at the time the blood transfusion. I didn't realize the time being under general anesthesia for the delivery. I didn't realize at the time couldn't carry the baby longer than 34 weeks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a big, it's a big difference. It's a big deal.
1: It's definitely a big deal. And so when I realized it was a big deal was about a half hour later when I left, you know, they wheeled me back to my room and they had said, you know, the next couple of days we're going to get an MRI just to confirm it should just, you know, I feel confident it is that, but let's just get the MRI. And I said, okay. So I went back to my room. I had not even had time to go to the bathroom before the MRI structure was at the front of my room, ready, (laughs) ready to take me. And that's when I knew this was serious. You know, when does that happen that fast at a hospital? Very, very rarely <laughs> does that happen that fast.
0: Right. You can't even get lunch that fast.
1: Correct. Correct. So I, uh, I you know, I went and had the MRI and I don't even think I was able to even call my husband between the time period of getting the diagnosis and the MRI. It was that fast and came back from it and then made a couple of phone calls and I was crushed. I was so upset. I cried harder that you know, that 24, 48 hours. And I had that entire time.
0: What was it that that crushed you? Was it the idea that this was a more serious situation and that your health or the baby's health was at risk? Was it this idea that unless, you know, something, you know, happened with fertility treatments or whatever, you weren't going to have any more kids. Like what part of it was it?
1: Yeah, it was the fact that the decision to have more children was just taken from me. Right. And it, it wasn't that I, you know, I was never somebody that said, I'm going to have 10 kids or five kids or three kids. You know, I, I'd always wanted two or three and it was really important to me that I had a boy and a girl and, you know, you don't get to choose that, but I was fortunate enough to have a boy first and this was going to be my daughter, but to not have the choice and to have that taken from me, to not decide in two years, two and a half, three years that we want to expand our family again in that same way, just made me feel so cheated. Yeah. And, you know, to not, to know this was my last pregnancy and to not be able to enjoy it. And to know that, you know, I didn't get to have the, the, the big belly out in public when people are like, oh, you know, all the cute stuff and wear the cute maternity clothes and just enjoy the last pregnancy or get maternity pictures or any of that, that I'll never have that opportunity again because it was just taken from me. And the risk to me, it terrified me when I started looking it up, what I was reading. And I quickly, I, I joined all these Placenta accreta Facebook pages and then started seeing all of these deaths recorded and all of these situations with babies not making it and mothers not making it and ICU visits and massive blood transfusions. And I started like having panic attacks. Like I was literally like, I can't, oh my gosh, this is way more serious than I expected. And for my mental health, I had to put all that away. I wasn't able to Google anymore. I wasn't able to be in support groups. I had to put it away. And I, you know, openly asked my doctor when she came in very, serious questions about what to expect. And when I was told that I couldn't carry her past 30 weeks because the risk to me was going to be too large. 34 um, and weeks, that she, right? 34. Yeah. I'm sorry, Yeah. 34 weeks. The risk to me would be too large. And that, you know, she'd go to the NICU and I'd likely be in the ICU afterwards. And they weren't really sure how long it would take till I'd be able to see my daughter and that I'd have a blood transfusion and, you know, all of that it was just a lot. It was a lot to handle. As I continued getting ultrasounds through February, the accreta turned into increta. So the placenta was digging deeper into my uterus. The situation was getting a lot scarier. And I had a second MRI the end of February where they thought it had gone to percreta through my bladder and was right through my uterus and it was right next to my bladder. Right. So they had always said to me 34 weeks was going to be the last. And so at that time, that was March 6th. My original due date was April 15th. And so I had, you know, a homemade calendar that I had on my wall and I had originally circled, you know, in red March 6th and I visualized that every day. And anyone that told me I couldn't get to March 6th, I'd kind of politely kick them out of my room and I said, "You're dealing with Carrie Creed here. I am getting to March 6th. There is no ifs ands buts about it." And at the end of February, my doctor came in and basically said, "You know, Carrie, the the MRI does not look good. The latest ultrasound does not look good and we're going to we're going to bump up your surgery about, you know, nine, 10 days. I, I was adamant. I said, no, no we're not, we're not doing that. Like I I couldn't handle that loss of control. Yeah. The switch. I had yeah. focused so much on March 6th. I couldn't handle moving it to like, I think it was like February twenty six. It wasn't even a big, a big shift. I I couldn't handle it. And she was supposed to be my April baby. Now she's my March baby. She's not my February baby. My son is born in February. They're not having the same month. Like I, this, this, no. And it it sounds so silly, but that was my way of controlling the situation. And, you know, they had said, like, I'm sorry, you, you know, you you don't have a say here. And this is this could be really bad. And, you know, we're going to have ureters put in like the stents put in your ureters to make sure that, you know, they're not nicked. And we're thinking about doing a balloon, but we're not sure how that's going to work with your clotting condition and so much back and forth on what they were doing from a treatment standpoint. And I was so impressed with that hospital, by the way, of the plan that they so quickly put in action. I mean, to the point where, they had a box already in the OR with all the surgical supplies ready to go. Right. They did dry ones, dry runs every day with the staff on how quickly they can get me to the OR. I mean, the entire hospital knew about my case.
0: Right. What and, hospital was it, if you don't mind saying?
1: Yeah, that was it. Was Bryn Mawr Hospital in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania?
0: Great. Great. Yeah. I mean, it. It and it's true that people with the placenta accreta, if you look at the data, when you look at you know the deaths and all the things you mentioned, the the likelihood of something horrific happening is much, much higher when it's unplanned, unknown, right? Someone walks into the hospital and they're hemorrhaging and they have this, then yeah, really bad things can happen when it's planned and known and you have a team in advance and they are prepared and they do this sort of preparation. Sure. Obviously it's very dangerous and things can go wrong and you will probably have, you know, ICU, blood transfusion and all these things, but the overwhelming likelihood is you're going to walk out of there. And it's a massive difference between those two situations. And so having a place that's prepared for this and knows what they're doing is really the, the best way to assure a good ultimate outcome.
1: Absolutely. And I think what made me more nervous in that situation is just my my other health conditions on top of it. You know, they were concerned about the factor five and the ease of Danlos and all the other intricacies that made it so challenging. That's what concerned me. But yes, you're entirely correct. You know, when, when it's non-diagnosed, prior diagnosed, that's that's when, you know, massive hemorrhaging occurs for sure.
0: They did move the data up ultimately?
1: They didn't, which was interesting. <laughs> there, was a, there was a scheduling issue at the last minute when they were deciding it the next day. And, you know, they had already put this big team in place of everyone one that was so briefed on my case and you know had practiced and talked weekly and there was two people out of the key like 12 that weren't going to be able to make that date work. Ah. Uh-huh. And they decided they looked back at the ultrasound and they said, you know, we fully don't think that waiting an extra week, week and a half is going to make that big of a difference.
0: Right. And you haven't so been bleeding gonna, either.
1: Right, and I had not been bleeding. So they right. said we're going to go back to the original date of March 6th and you know, that was just like an unbelievable celebration. And, you know, I they had said, you know, but if you do bleed in advance, like you're going to probably need to deliver. And I said, I understand that. I just don't want to have anything scheduled prior. Right. Like if something happens prior, I'm I'm accepting of that. So, you know, I did get to March 6th and surgery actually went extremely well. They did have to give me the, the hysterectomy and remove my uterus and my tubes. I cut my ovaries and I cut my cervix. I did have a blood transfusion, not a huge one. I don't remember the exact amount. Mm-hmm. But definitely had a had a transfusion and my daughter went to the NICU. She was there for eighteen days. Thankfully, I actually did not need to go to the ICU. It's great. They felt they felt the surgery went so well and I was fairly stable when I woke up in excruciating pain, but stable enough that I didn't need to go to the ICU, which was wonderful. And then I continued on with you know with my recovery. So I, you know, I feel extremely blessed and fortunate that I have not had any lifelong medical issues regarding it. The placenta was just about to go through my uterus. It had not gone through yet. So the bladder team was there ready for bladder surgery, but I did not need that. Great. And I'm very thankful for that because I do know a lot of people struggle with, with that um, procedure and, and the aftermath of it. So very, very fortunate.
0: How'd you decide to take these stories to take your, you know, what you'd been through, your experiences, what you learned, and then to, you know, bring it out to other people?
1: Yeah, well it was the time that I was in that hospital when I was pregnant and I knew that the, the, I knew the max amount of time I could be there would be 65 days. When I circled that March 6th and counted down in the calendar, I knew it was 65 days. And I didn't have weeks and weeks to determine the strategy that I would use to get through this time. Cause this was fully mental. You know, with my, with my leg surgery, I was in pain and struggling and recovering. This was, I was completely, perfectly able mentally, physically, I just had to be in bed. And so it was a full mental game to, to persevere. And so what I did was not only did I have my homemade calendar on the wall, but I had a whole wall of motivation that I had my husband print out all these quotes from Google that I had sent him. And I had a custom banner in my room that said, keep on cooking, baby sister, batter operated (laughs) candles. And I just made it into my positive shrine. It was the most decorated hospital room anyone had ever seen better than my dorm room in college. It was awesome. And it it gave me inspiration. it
0: It was your pregnancy dojo.
1: Yes. Yes, for sure. And the other thing I decided to do was keep working. My boss had called me after I was admitted and he said, okay, you're going to start maternity leave now. And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, yes, yes, you are. This is way too stressful. And I said, no, what's too stressful is me sitting here with nothing to do and thinking about the danger I'm in. I need to keep my mind focused. I need to keep purpose and I don't have anything teed up and ready to go on maternity leave. And I don't, I don't leave my, my work like that.
0: Yeah. And pre so, pre COVID, this was a big deal, but now it was like, yeah, work, work remotely. Who cares? It's totally all good. everyone's remote. Yeah. Now. yeah. <laughs> back then you're it, was, right. it was a yeah. big deal to work remote a back then. Very
1: big deal. Very yeah. big deal. So they let me do that. I actually ended up winning the second largest deal in the company's history from the hospital, and had a big celebration with the doctors and nurses. And my husband came down, and it was very funny. But yeah, that's what gave me purpose. That's what allowed me to take control. And I controlled when my visitors would come, and what I needed, and what I, you know, when it was too much for me. And you know, I really took control of the entire situation. And so after I got to March 6th and, you know, came home and my daughter came home in late March, I knew that the strategies that I used, which I had also used with my leg surgery had worked. You know, I was able to get through this situation when everyone really didn't think I could, but I still didn't feel right. And it wasn't until I was four months postpartum that I kind of lost it for lack of a better term. And I had all of this anger and all of this rage and all this extreme sadness. I was triggered by seeing you know, maternity commercials or maternity clothes or seeing somebody announce their pregnancy or seeing somebody do skin to skin with their baby after they were delivered or you know, any of those types of images or stories. And I was just so saddened about what had happened to me? And I was luckily in one-on-one therapy after I had left the hospital. They recommended that I did that based on all the trauma that I had been through and really thinking about life and death for, for so many days. And I was diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And you know, I did some very intensive therapy. I got into EMDR therapy, which is eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, where you're, you heal your brain through re-going through the trauma to heal what you went through and, and process it correctly. Mm-hmm. And I put in the time, and I came out of that way better, Carrie Creed, than I ever was. Right. It's like the f- it it's a- like physical
0: therapy for you yeah. know your you know your mental health. It's the same concept. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yes, and I never really had an appreciation for mental health prior to that. And when I came out of that darkness, like a year later, when I came out of the darkness, and when I. You know, really realized what I had missed out on during my early maternity leave uh, days with my baby because I was just so disconnected with her, and I was just going through the motions without really even being alive. That is the moment when I said to myself, I need to share my story. I've always talked about writing a book. I've always talked about being a motivational speaker. Now that I have this second situation, now that I've tried these strategies out twice and persevered, now that I've had this challenge with mental health, and I understand what it feels to be, in it's such a deep, dark, scary place, and it was able to rise above, I can help so many people. And it was literally on the 18th anniversary of my leg surgery. So it was last. September twelfth last year, where I was with my day job and our women's leadership group, we went to see a motivational speaker. And I was sitting in the audience and I was watching her speak, and it just it did something to me that day. And I, I I said this is it, this this is this is what I'm going to do. And I came home and I started writing my book and I started researching, you know, how to create an LLC and how to design a website. And quickly realized a lot of that stuff I wasn't able to do myself, and you know, hired a company to design my website and got uh, started networking with people and you know. Six, seven months later, I, I launched my business this past April, you know, not knowing it was gonna be a month after COVID hit, but, <laughs> right. you know, and, and so this is what I'm doing now is really trying to share my positivity and share my strategies with others so they can, you know, conquer life's uninvited challenges and find the way to persevere to better themselves.
0: Right. And who is it that that finds you and asks you to speak for them? Like what kind of groups would say, hey, we want Carrie Creed to come talk to us?
1: Any type of corporate who's looking for an inspirational, motivational speaker. It's women's groups within corporate, women's groups outside of corporate. There's a ton of women's groups that get together in the evenings and the weekends and talk about all certain different issues. It's also colleges. Colleges actually do a ton with inspiration and and strategies of, of conquering challenges. And I'm gonna be hopefully working with high schoolers doing some camp sessions for children who are having some medical issues and need some, inspiration and positivity in their life.
0: It's amazing. And, and you talk about, you know, you focus on this positivity. T- tell me what, what do you mean by positivity?
1: Positivity to me is, it's a mindset. You know, it doesn't mean you're smiling all throughout the day. It doesn't mean you're always happy. I have many moments where I've cried and have, have been super upset about what, it, what I've gone through or what has happened to me, but it's a choice. It's a choice that you make to find the positive in every negative. You know, it's a, it's a choice that you make to look at any situation and realize, okay, this, yes, this happened to me, but there's a reason why it happened. For the longest time, I couldn't figure out why my leg surgery happened to me, why that happened after my freshman year in college, why that changed my whole trajectory of my entire life based on my career and, you know, what I've done. And it wasn't until I got pregnant and was put in that hospital bed for 65 days that I knew why I went through that previous experience. Because when I was pregnant, I didn't have weeks and weeks and weeks to figure out what was going to work for me and how to keep my mind focused and how to keep myself positive and optimistic. I didn't have time to do that. When I had my leg surgery, I had months and months and months to figure that out because it was, a, it was an 18-month ordeal. My pregnancy was a 65-day situation. And so I had to immediately tap into those strategies that I knew from 18 years earlier. So that's why I went through that. So it took me 18 years to realize that. But my big message is every challenge that everyone is going through, there's a reason for it. Sometimes that reason is right smack in the front of your face and you find it out a couple days later. And sometimes it doesn't really appear for for years and years. But we all have learnings through each of our challenges. And I'm a big believer that, you know, one door closes, another one opens. So that's what it means to be positive is just to look at things differently from a different perspective and to be, you know, grateful for the small things that happen in your life. Because no matter how bad things are. There's so much to be grateful
0: for. So interesting that you mentioned that because this idea of, you know, being positive is not this sort of like blissful unawareness of, you know, what's real in your life or what's real in the world. It's not ignoring. And, you know, we had a podcast about six months ago with a a friend of mine uh, named Jeff Zahn, who's a he's a physician. He's an anesthesiologist, but he's also, you know, he's written on this. And he had this concept where he talked about choosing happiness And it's sort of the same idea that part of our our mindset is how we choose. And there's this idea of, you know, positive psychology and there's data behind it. And it's the same thing you're describing. It's that this this notion that you can look at things differently or look at them in a certain way and focus on certain positive aspects. And it actually helps how you feel and it helps your brain chemistry and how you feel that it's it's not hokey. It's real. And yeah. it's, it's, it's an amazing um, strategy that people can use, but it requires help. It's not easy to just come up with it on your own. Some people need you know coaching or need someone to explain it to them or sort of give them help in how to do that. And I think it's just so interesting when you do it from a public speaking perspective. Do you, are you able to engage with your audience when you do this? Or is it just sort of you give a speech and then you leave? Because I know we were talking before that you're also going to be starting a coaching aspect to, to what you do. And I'm just curious, like when you're in an audience, how much do that of that comes into play when you come to speak with a group?
1: A, a lot, actually, you know, being able to and read their body language, and it's the, the messages you you receive after you speak that makes it so worth it. I mean, even putting a post on Instagram, I you know share a ton of positive between quotes and my personal stories and strategies on my Instagram, Carrie Creed speaker. And the DMs that I get from people who are either going through a medical challenge, it, it could be placenta accreta, placenta previa, either's Danlos, or completely something different that I resonated with them based on something I've said. Those are the times where I know that I'm making a difference. Those are the times where I realize that people do need these reminders. And you know, even today's message that I put on my Instagram, you know, it says, if you, if you don't like the current chapter you're in, turn the page and start a new one you know, it's all up to you. We all have this choice. We have this choice to be positive. We have this choice to be thankful and grateful. And on the flip side, we have the choice to agonize over the one negative thing that happened in one day or, you know, how we acted with our kids last night and just to harp on that today and feel horrible about it. Just we have have to let those things go. We have to choose to find the joy in the day. We have to choose to find the positive positive in the negative situation because it's there. It's just easier sometimes to find the negative. The, the negative is right in front of our face. It's easier to find that and to talk about it and to, and to sulk in it. Sometimes it's harder to find the positive. But once you do and when you focus on that, your energy shifts, your mindset shifts, and your your energy that you'll you know show to the world shifts.
0: Another theme that seems to come up a lot is not just this positivity, but this idea of power, that people are more powerful and they have more strength than they assume that they have. What do you mean by that, and how do you how do you convince people of that? Like, what's your argument that that's true?
1: It's true because I mean I'm a living proof of that. I I never would if if you told me at the age of 20 years old that I would be missing two years of school and almost have my leg amputated and be in immense pain for for you know for over a year, I would have said there's no way I could deal with that. There's absolutely no way I'd be able to handle that. But I did, and so everyone has it within them. They just need to choose to pull it out. You know people like to use problems as excuses. They like to use negativity for attention. And if you can flip that energy, if you if you're going through a challenge and you're or you're diagnosed with something and you know, hey, don't ignore it. First of all, take time to be upset, take time to cry, take time to vent. I'm a huge believer in that. Don't bury it. Just don't stay there. And once you flip that switch and you say, okay, yes, I've dealt this card and I don't like this card but I am going to turn this and I'm still going to be able to do good in my life and I'm still going to be able to continue on to do X, Y, Z. And it might look different than how my original plan was, but that's okay. And it, as soon as you flip that switch and you decide to push forward and you decide to find the good that could still happen, you've won. Wow. That's the big difference. Yeah. You have to choose to win. You have to choose to take that control. And that's the power inside of each of us. It's, it's all there. It's just some people... Prefer not to find it because they want to, they maybe they want to sulk in it or maybe they want the negative attention that they get from having the negative situation because they like the sympathy. A lot of people like the sympathy.
0: I love this. Obviously, we sort of connected because, you know, part of your story was pregnancy related and you found us, you know, first of all, thank you for listening to the podcast, but, but you sure, found us absolutely. sort of through, you know, because the connection was, you know, via sent to Previa. And what you're discussing obviously is much bigger. Than pregnancy, right? This is, you know, life. But I just believe all these things that you're talking about. It's so true this idea of being positive, this idea of realizing your own power, this idea of, you know, like you said, it's totally acceptable and expected and healthy to sort of, you know, grieve over something bad that happens to you and to process it that way and to, you know, let it out, not to bury it. But then at some point, and that may be a day later, a week later, a month later, at some point, you have to say, all right, you know, we're going to try to flip it. And it's hard but it is doable. And I've also in my own life, especially with so many of my patients who have gone through, I mean, unbelievable challenges that I can't even fathom. And they come out on the other side as such happy and so content and they just have wonderful families and wonderful perspectives and they've been through, you know, hell. And it's Mm -hmm. just unbelievable to, and it's inspirational to see people who do that in such a grand scale, but All of us, even on just small scales, if we haven't been dealt such a horrible card, everyone's got bad things that happen to them at some point in their life. How do people find you if they want to know more about you? They want to hear what you're saying. They want to read what you're doing. Tell everyone how, how can they how can they reach Carrie Creed?
1: Well, the best easiest place is on Instagram, and I'm at Carrie Creed Speaker. You can also go to my website, CarrieCreed.com, and that's C-A-R-R-I-E. And then Creed is C-R-E-E-D. Carrie I'm, you can also link to my Facebook and Instagram page. Most of my content's on Instagram, so that's the better one to follow. And I, I post a lot of more current stories there. And then you know my email is on my website as well. So you can definitely reach me. You know, I'd love to engage with you on Instagram. I love, you know, going back and forth with comments and, and making sure. That you know what the content I'm putting out there resonates with each of you because my whole passion right now is is really trying to make sure that everyone knows how strong they really are and and how to persevere and to never give up and living your life with that positive mindset will truly change your life forever.
0: It's amazing, They're really. What a great message! Thank you so much for for doing this first of all because it is absolutely helpful to people. I follow you on Instagram. I've been on your website and I just think it's awesome. And thank you for coming and taking the time to speak to our listeners on the podcast. I'm sure they really appreciate it as well.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Nate, for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been so fun getting to know you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.